We all have circumstances that don't have any human solution to. And we all have problems that we think we should eliminate as soon as possible. The reality is, every trouble and trial in your and my life is custom designed by God and sent to you at precisely the right time to exercise your faith. Welcome to Mana Bible Lessons. In this podcast, we take an in-depth expository look at the Bible. You're listening to the audio-only version. If you would like to see the video, visit manapodcast.com forward slash watch. And now, here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Numbers 11. Numbers 11. We're going to continue the narrative uh, of the children of Israel moving from the land of slavery called Egypt and the promised land called Canaan. And this is a book that records that journey, covers almost 40 years of Israel's history, about 39 years. And it really records God's expectations of Israel as they're moving from slavery to freedom and God's leading them and then their response to God's leadership. It's really divided, as we mentioned uh, last week, into three sections, chapters 1 through 10. The first section really cover Israel's obedient, loving response to the Lord. Chapters 11 through 26 really cover Israel's disobedience and subsequent discipline. And then chapters 26 to 36 cover Israel's recommitment or coming back to the Lord and what happens at that point in time. The first 10 chapters, really, God is preparing Israel for the march. They've spent about a year at Mount Sinai. If you look at the narrative, they come out of Egypt. They take about a month to get to Mount Sinai. They spend 11, 11 and a half months at Mount Sinai, and we're right there. They're still at the foot of the mountain. God is leading them, and they're getting ready to leave. So the first 10 chapters, they haven't left yet, but God's organizing them. He says, when you leave... Here's how I want you to be organized. Here's how you're going to march. Here's what the Levites are going to do. So he, he really organizes them for the journey. And they respond with a great deal of obedience and joy. As a matter of fact, the spiritual high point of this book is the last three verses of chapter 10. So if you just look up a bit to the last three verses of chapter 10, this is the high point of this book. And it says, Thus they set out from the Mount of the Lord, three days' journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then when it came about, the Ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when the cloud came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel." Now, this is really a beautiful picture of God himself present with his people in the cloud of uh, pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, giving them leading and protection and guidance and presence. He is very present with them and he is leading and the people are following. And then when you look at chapter 11, which we're going to open today, the contrast just knocks your socks off. Verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Now. The people became like those who bellyache. I think your version probably says complain, grumble, murmur, whatever the word is, of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. It means he was hot. 
And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Here's the principle. Complaining is rejecting God's care for us and his control over our circumstances. Complaining is rejecting God's care for us and his control over our circumstances. So Moses is now shifting gears when he records this narrative under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give you a half a dozen or more chapters about the reasons why Israel comes under God's judgment and they are condemned as an act of judgment to spend 40 years in the wilderness. That was not God's original intent. God's original intent is you leave Egypt, you go to Mount Sinai, you have a meeting with me there for a year, and we go into the promised land. They spent 40 years in the wilderness as an act of judgment for disobedience, and the next several weeks, Lord willing, we'll be opening that at that point. But this complaining, this is the first, the second mention of the complaining, this is not unusual. It's not an isolated incident. This nation, at this stage of their history, complained as a habitual practice. And you know people just like that, don't you? If something is always wrong, it's never good. It's always bad. Well, that's where Israel is at this point in time. What's phenomenal is they had seen God's power in delivering them from slavery, right? They've seen the 10 plagues. They've seen the parting of the Red Sea. They've spent a year at Mount Sinai. They've seen the mountain quake, the, the literally shake a huge earthquake. God came down on top of the mountain to give them his law, thunder and lightning. They had seen God's feeding them supernatural with manna for a year. They've been eating manna for a year. Every morning it just shows up. They'd been protected and led by the very presence of God, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire by night. And they are three days in their journey. Three days, 72 hours, and they are whining. And you don't know anybody like that, right? They're complaining, they're grumbling against God. You know, many people talk a good game when it comes to God's sovereignty. Oh, the Lord is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And I'll accept it. Until he says, let's try that out and find out whether you really believe that stuff. And he takes all your chips and puts them in the middle of the table and says, okay, we're going to put this into practice. Well, Israel was very, very agreeable with God at the foot of the mountain. And three days after they left the mountain, they're complaining. I start to bellyache as soon as things get burdensome. And they don't really talk to God about it. They talk to each other about it. So they don't take it to the Lord in prayer. They slander God to each other, right? Pastor Lingan Duncan has said, you know, it's one thing for your child to come to you and say, uh, Mom, Dad, um, I don't think you've been fair with me. Can we talk about this? It's quite another thing when your child goes to the neighbors and said, my parents aren't fair with me, right? Entirely different item. Well, the people of Israel didn't take their concerns to God. They take them to each other. And God became very angry. And it says, the fire of the Lord burned on the edges of the camp. Now, we don't know that this is lightning from the sky or whether from the cloud. Literally, fire came from the cloud, the pillar of cloud. But it probably consumed brushes and tents and animals and maybe even some of the complainers. At any rate, this was what we call a proverbial shot across the bow. God's really unhappy with this behavior, so knock it off. Well, they didn't. Verse 4. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. 
And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the garlic and the onions. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Here's the principle. Complaining is a communicable disease that comes from selfish ingratitude and selective memory. You can write this down because your grandchildren will need to hear this at some point, right? <laughs> Complaining is a communicable disease that comes from selfish ingratitude and selective memory. So they are whining, and whining is by definition self-centered. And whining is the opposite of gratitude, right? It's ingratitude. Someone once said, I think some people enjoy complaining almost as much as they enjoy doing nothing about it. Here's a slogan to hang your hat on. Stop, stop global whining. Yeah, I like that. So you look at this and you go, what's with all this whining? What's with all this weeping? Here's two and a half million people, right? That's how many people there are. And they're literally bawling. They're whining and wailing and crying over being hungry. And they're not wailing about being hungry. They're wailing about a lack of variety in their diet. Where's the barbecue? This is not fair. And it says the instigators of the grumbling were the, were the rabble. And literally, it means riffraff. It was a mixed multitude. It was, these were non-Israelites. They came out of Egypt with Israel, but they weren't committed to the God of Israel. They, they came for the goodies. They came because they wanted to experience the goodies that God provided. And they said, God, this manna of yours is boring. It's bland. It doesn't have any spice. You know, we really want stuff that makes us burp, like garlic and onions and stuff like that. I mean, that, that's the kind of food we really want, you know? So the picture is God's been feeding them heavenly, nutritious manna for a year. For free. You didn't have to go earn it. You just went outside before the sun got hot and picked it up off the ground. This is free food and it's probably the best food since the Garden of Eden. I mean, this stuff comes from heaven. I have no idea what the nutritional content of manna was. We have a little description of it. But it has to be nutritious food because God knows what they need nutritionally. But of course, they know better than God. And bland is bad and spicy is good. And so the diet's a little boring. And they, it, it's been keeping them alive and well for a year now. But of course, they rejected that because God didn't know what they needed, and, and they did. And their bellies were controlling their brains and their tongues. God knew what they needed, they knew what they wanted, and they grumbled. They basically said, God, we don't like your provision. We want you to give us meat. And ultimately, this infected the Israelite nation, and it infected Moses as well. Now, this complaining is self-pity on steroids. They had the dread disease of plum. P-L-O-M. Poor little old me. <laughs> this is a disease that once you get it, you will become nauseatingly self-centered. And your friends will want to slap you. And they probably should. They also had spiritual dementia. They had been in Egypt for 400 years. They had been on the trail for three days. 
and in three days they're wild, wailing and crying like a tired, hungry child with a full diaper. It's really bad. Their memories are so selective that they're telling God that they miss the free food in Egypt. Because all this food was free. Yeah, it only cost the lives of their baby boys who were drowned in the Nile and the lives of their men that were whipped within an inch of their life. They were slaves for 400 years building Pharaoh's cities and they forgot all of that because the diet was boring. And this happened in 72 hours. They thought Egypt was the good old days. You know what this is like? This is like you and I telling the Lord, you know, my life was better before Jesus saved me. Matter of fact, I think I want to go back. That old life of slavery to sin, I had a lot more fun then than I'm having now. I, I think I want to go back to that. That's exactly what they were doing. Because Egypt was slavery. They were on the way to the promised land by God's power. And they said, you know, Egypt was, Egypt was pretty good because of all that free food. And they forgot. You talk about selective memory, the slavery, the death, the tremendous grace and power that God has given them to set them free. This is what I call stuck on stupid self-deception. And you all know people like that. Sometimes we look in the mirror and we go, yeah, I resemble that. So just, just a freeze side. The good old days never were, right? What people call the good old days is a myth. It's created by selective memory, a great imagination, and some wishful thinking. Dentistry in 1850 was whiskey and pliers. <laughs> Surgery was a stick between your teeth and a handsaw to amputate your leg or whatever was infected. You want to go back to that? See, here's what we want. We all want the problems of yesterday with the solutions of today. It doesn't work that way. God gives us the problems of today and the solutions of today and the problems of yesterday and the solutions of yesterday, but above all else, he gives us himself. So their perspective at this point in time is very, very selfish. And this are, these are the people that are supposed to invade and conquer Canaan. And three days on of the journey, they're whining because they don't have their diet that they want. It's pretty, see, pretty easy to see. They're in no condition to invade Canaan at all. They couldn't travel three days without belly aching about the food. So they're never going to endure the hardships of conquering Canaan. So God knows that they have a lot of maturing to do. And of course, we're not immune to this either. Um, I think one of the things that's most applicable to us is attitudes are contagious. Your attitude, my attitude, is contagious. People pick it up. You've all heard the saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Gentlemen, you should put that on the kitchen wall and memorize it. So when we complain, who are we teaching to complain? Everybody around us, our children, our grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. I remember... Uh, talking to one guy, and uh, he, was, he was in his 70s at that point, and he was lamenting the fact that his children were not walking with the Lord, and he said, you know, it's probably my fault because we had roast preacher too many times for lunch on Sundays. Complaining about the church, complaining about this, who's listening? Those little ears. And they go, well, I guess that's normal, so they start finding fault, and pretty soon they're out the door as well. So God is saying, he's revealing 
the sin nature of humanity and his own children here. And he's giving this to us an example. He says, you and I today, we need to discipline our desires and we need to develop the attitude of gratitude and the discipline of saying thank you for whatever he chooses to provide because he knows what we need. Verse 10, now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, this is one of the more useful prayers for your instruction. I'm not saying you should pray like this. You should read this prayer and learn from this prayer. Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I supposed to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. Here's the principle. Doing God's work is impossible without God's power. Forgetting this leads to frustration and depression. Doing God's work without God's power is impossible. Forgetting this leads to frustration and depression. You gotta, to some sense, you gotta sympathize with Moses. I mean, he's really feeling caught in the middle. The people are complaining and whining and God is furious. And he's the leader. God told him he was, right? Moses looks at the problem and he looks at two and a half million people and he looks at his capacity and he includes the problems impossible to solve. So he gets frustrated and depressed. He feels so inadequate that he asks God to take him out of here. Just take me home. By the way, depression is far more common than we might think, but even in godly leadership, it's very, very common. When you read the Psalms and you read some of these Psalms, Psalm 6, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, you look at David and you go, man, the guy is suicidal. I mean, he's just underwater, significantly underwater. Job goes through such pain that he curses the day he was born. He said, cursed be the man who came and told the village that my mother had a man child. He was just horribly suffering. Jonah was so angry over God's mercy to Israel's enemies that says, God, just kill me now, right? Elijah, Jezebel sent word to him and said, I'm gonna take your head off. He goes 40 days into the wilderness to Mount Horeb and he says, God, I'm such a failure as a prophet. Just take my life. And of course, I'm, my little brain goes, well, just go back to Jezebel. She'll take it for you. You know, no worries. So, but he's really depressed. He feels like he's a complete failure. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah prophesies for 40 years to the children of Israel about God's judgment. God tells them at the beginning of the 40 year period, they're not going to listen but you're gonna prophesy anyway. And it's gonna be a failure from a human standpoint, but you're gonna do it anyway. Breaks his heart. Hannah is so depressed over being childless that she could not eat. So this being underwater emotionally is not an uncommon issue among God's people. But the truth is God never asks us to do anything for him that we can do on our own. 
everything that God calls you and I to do in his service utterly depends on his power and not yours. And we make the mistake all the time, and I do it to this day, of saying, God told me what to do in his word, now I'm just going to go do it. And I will fail virtually every time because I do not have the capacity to obey without the Holy Spirit's power in me. And neither do you. See, Israel's problem is not unsolvable. Moses' power is inadequate. Of course it's inadequate. He's a human being. Human power is always inadequate to do God's work. And we as God's people beat our brains out year in, year out, trying to obey the will of God in our own strength. And it was never designed that way. We were to walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit and his power because God's work requires God's power. When you read about Jesus' ministry on earth, Everything he did depended on God's power. Everything he did depended on the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit every day. He disciplined his life. He depended on the Holy Spirit's power and direction every single day of his ministry. So God's people, you and I, have to depend on God's power. And one of the ways to find out your dependency ratio is to find out your prayer quotient. Prayerlessness, prayerlessness is the best sign of self-dependence. If I'm not praying... I'm saying, God, I got this. I can handle this. That's the beginning stages of spiritual disaster. Because if I think I can do God's will without God's power, I have obviously a sinful view of my capacity and an inadequate view of God's capacity. Now, we got to give Moses credit. Moses did one thing right. He took his problem to God. The Israelites bellyache to each other. Moses takes his problem to God, and he is brutally honest with God. Moses winds up complaining to God about the complainers. And his key question is, why have you laid the burden of all these people on me? I mean, he's really feeling the pressure of the people. The people were demanding meat. And Moses jumped to the conclusion, well, it's my job to give them meat. You've heard the old saying, failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. Or there's another variation of that. Your crisis is not my emergency. Well, Moses assumed that because the people were demanding meat, it was his job to give it to them. God had never asked Moses to solve Israel's demands. We get into deep trouble when we confuse God's job description and our job description. And that's what Moses was doing. God never called Moses to carry Israel and bring them into Canaan in his own strength. In Exodus 19, 4, God told Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I mean, who opened the Red Sea? Who did the 10 plagues? Who's been given them manna from heaven? Who's provided water from the rock? Who owns the cloud of pillar of fire and, and the pillar of cloud? God. It's all God who's been carrying them forward. And both Moses and the people have forgotten God's power and God's provision. And they're so overwhelmed by the problems of the moment that they forgot the power of God. And this is us. When we're overwhelmed with problems, it is so easy to look at the problem. See, Moses was gazing at the problem. He wasn't gazing at God. He was looking at 
God through the lens of the problem. And he was ad doing the math and it wasn't adding up from his perspective. He wasn't looking at it from God's perspective. Moses does the math. Verse 21. Jump ahead with me. The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. He's talking about the foot soldiers, 20 years old and upward. Multiply that by four, spouse and two kids, you got 2.4 million people. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Here's Moses adding up. He says, should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? Moses is overwhelmed. He looks at these 2.4 million people and he looks at the meat they need and he says, there's no way that this can happen. Now, obviously, God comes to a little different conclusion. You would be well advised to underline verse 23. Highlight it, memorize it, paste it on the mirror, put it on your forehead. The Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? Good question. Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses is having a faith crisis. God reminds him, my power is not limited. By the way, go back a couple of months and see how I brought you out of the Red Sea or you know, through the Red Sea and the plagues of Egypt. Look at what I've done. Remember the history you have with me. So the solution is to see the problem through the lens of God's power instead of through the lens of our own capacity. One man trying to feed two million people, obviously not going to work. God had already been feeding two and a half million people every single day, right? Where do you think the manna came from? You know? So here's a question for you. If God can do manna, do you think God can do meat? Remember that because you and I, God has been faithful to us in the past. Lots and lots and lots of ways for lots and lots and lots of years. And we encounter a problem. We get a medical diagnosis or a job loss or a child rebels or grandchildren or whatever it happens to be. And we go, oh my gosh, this problem is so vast. And the Lord says, child, is my power limited? Do you think I can handle your boss? Do you think I can handle your cancer? Do you think I can handle your child or your grandchildren? Do you think I can handle your depression? Do you think I can handle the brokenness in your life? Am I God or am I not God? We need to come back to the ground, the foundation, that God is God and his power is not limited. And surrender whatever that problem is to him. If God can do manna, God can do meat. Moses was like Peter. As long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, Peter walked on the water, remember? Jesus said, come to me. When he took his eyes off Jesus, he looks at the waves and the waves are big and they are big and you got big waves and I got big waves and he starts to sink because he lost his focus on the Lord. We all have circumstances that don't have any human solution to and we all have problems that we think we should eliminate as soon as, as possible. The reality is, every trouble and trial in your and my life is custom designed by God. And sent to you at precisely the right time to exercise your faith. Genuine faith will always stand the test. Phony faith will always fail the test. 
Someone has once said, gold paint is afraid of the fire, but real gold is never afraid of the fire. Costume jewelry dreads the diamond polishing wheel, but the genuine diamond fears no test. See, muscles that are never stressed, do they get stronger or weaker? I'd say weaker. How will your faith muscle grow without being tested and exercised? And you look and you go, Brad, this is real easy for you to talk about. Yes, it is. And I've got scar tissue over the testing. And so do you, because many of us in this room are under the exercise of faith testing now. And our circumstances, we're having a faith trial. Who am I going to trust? What am I going to believe? How am I going to solve this? God gave those to you specifically because he knew specifically the areas of your life that he wants to work on. He uses trials to teach us to trust him and not ourselves because God's work on planet earth can only be done through his power. So of course he's going to give us problems that we have no solutions to. How are we going to learn to trust him otherwise? See, it's very easy to say, well, God... I'm just going to have to find the best doctor in the world and they'll heal me. Really? I'm not saying you shouldn't find a good doctor, but they don't heal you. God heals you. I need to find the best attorney in the world and they'll solve all my legal problems. I'm not saying you shouldn't go with a good attorney, but your solution is never human. Ultimately, all the solution is in the hand of God. We won't trust God's power until we stop trusting our own. Amen? Amen. And he will always give us things that we can't solve for that express purpose. See, Jesus is irrevocably, God is irrevocably committed to shaping you and me like Jesus. He's a sculptor. He's got his hammer and his chisel. And he's shaping us. And it hurts. And we say, God, just let me be, just, just don't, no more. He says, I'm not done yet. You don't look like Jesus yet. And I'm going to keep shaping you until I take you home. And we go, no, no, just leave me like I am. I don't need this arm done. You know, just a block, a block of marble is fine. I'm okay with the block. God says, no, no, no. I'm not okay until you look like my son. And I will do whatever it takes. And he loves us enough not to listen to that prayer to stop. He loves us that much. And when you get home to glory, you'll be really grateful that he loved you that much and loved us that much. So God first now is dealing with Moses' problem, and he's going to deal with the people's problem. Go back to verse 16. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders, the leaders of the people, and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them. And they shall the burden, bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it all alone. Verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit of God rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. Here's the principle. God calls and equips leaders for service through the power of his spirit. God calls and equips, I could just say and say people, it's not necessarily leaders, in this case it's leaders, but he calls you and I for service through the power of his spirit. Moses is the only leader at this point in time. 
He's taken all this work on him. If you remember way back in Exodus 18, Moses is burning out. And his father-in-law, Jethro, comes to him and says, Moses, what you're doing is not good. You're sitting here and Israel is waiting in a line to see you. I mean, there's two and a half million people. There's a line to see Moses. I don't even think the guy got a potty break. You know, he's right here, he's sitting, and there's people coming, coming, coming. Well, I need to know what to do. What's the word of the Lord for me and how should I apply this? He's the only one. Jethro says, not a good idea. You need to delegate. You need to appoint solid, biblical, godly men and share the load. That was about a year ago. You get the distinct impression Moses never got around to it. Until now, when crisis forced the issue. Now God tells him to do the same thing. So God, Moses gathers the 70 elders and God brings them to the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. And he pours the Holy Spirit on them. And you say, well, how do we know that? Well, it says they prophesied. We've got visible evidence that the Spirit of God was upon them. They prophesied. Doesn't necessarily mean predicting the future. It probably means speaking or singing praise and worship without prior training. But it was evidence that the Holy Spirit was in fact on them and that God had anointed them for that service. Apparently it was a one-time event. What this passage tells us is that Moses was not indispensable. You know who's indispensable? The Holy Spirit is indispensable. Holy Spirit can work through anybody. Look in the mirror, right? Have you ever been amazed at what God does with little old you? You should be. We're just clay pots, as 1 Corinthians says. But God's people, filled with God's Spirit, are equipped to do God's work here on earth because He has chosen to work through us, which is just amazing grace. So you're going to notice a couple things here. Moses took his problem directly to the Lord. And the Lord's response to Moses is patient and kind and generous, and he gives him help. He anoints 70 leaders to help carry the load. He gives Moses what he needs. It gives him a new perspective. He gives him spirit-filled leaders. God's response to the people is very different because they slandered God behind his back thinking he wasn't going to hear and he is now going to give them what they want. Verse 18. When you hear this, you should pucker up. This should scare you. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you to meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Here's the principle. When we reject God's provision, we are rejecting God's purpose. And we're really rejecting God's person. God used manna to teach Israel to trust him and not themselves. That was the whole point. When we reject God's provision, we are rejecting God's purpose. 
God used manna to teach Israel to trust him and not themselves. Now, if you ever have a prayer request to the Lord and he gives you this response, it should terrify you. When God tells you he's going to answer your prayer and you're going to hate the answer because he's going to give you what you want and what you've been demanding, you should fall on your pace, repent, surrender, give that back, release it back to the Lord, tell him that you will take whatever he wants to give you because you have been a fool spiritually for demanding your way before Almighty God. They didn't do that. They said, bring it on. We want the meat. This craving for meat was costing them valuable time. They're supposed to be on the way to Canaan, right? Isn't that the goal? Let's get to Canaan. And they said, we want meat. God, you have not been a good God. You have not provided for us. We were better off in Egypt. We were better off before Jesus Christ came to save us from sin. That's what our version would be. I was better off before you. I met you than I met after I met you. I want meat. God says, fine. You got meat. You're going to be stuck for 30 days eating this meat and it's costing you time. You should be marching toward Canaan. You forgot the purpose. The whole purpose is to get to Canaan. Well, Egypt is before Christ. For us believers, Egypt is before Christ. Canaan is heaven. This life on earth, that's the book of Numbers. That's 40 years of journey, right? Pilgrimage through the wilderness. This planet is a wilderness, spiritually, yes? So we're the children of Israel. We're on the way to heaven. And we get distracted by the meat and the spice of this life. God says, don't forget where you're going. You're supposed to be walking toward heaven every single day, not getting distracted with the toys of this place. It's not that you can't enjoy them, but don't stop marching toward heaven for heaven's sakes. So you're stuck for 30 days. They called God's provision bad and they called slavery good. Now that's called twisted, that's perversion. They were a moral mess. See, God's purpose was far bigger than just manna or meat. Deuteronomy 8.3. Within probably 40 years from this time, Moses is going to remind them, the next generation, Deuteronomy 8.3. And he, God, humbled you. And God let you be hungry and fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. God says, look, if you can't depend on me for your daily bread, how are you going to depend on me when the battle in Canaan starts? Are you kidding? I've been feeding you. I've protected you. I've, by a mighty arm, brought you out of Egypt, and you're telling me slavery is better than that. Now, that's just repudiating the goodness of God. God says, your judgment is, you want it, you got it. Thomas Constable says, the spirit of God had settled the leadership problem, gave Moses 70 leaders. Now the wind of God is going to solve their food problem. Verse 31. Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side of the camp, all around the camp, 
about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered 10 homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Verse 33. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the place, name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Here's the principle. When we reject God's way, he may discipline us by giving us our way. When we reject God's way, he may discipline us by giving us our way. Now let's unpack this. Quails were a migratory bird and they spent the winters in Africa and the summers in Europe and they migrated back and forth. They had relatively heavy bodies, pretty fatty flesh, and they had very short wings. And so they could not fly long distances at one stretch. And unlike most birds, they prefer to fly with the wind as opposed to into the wind. You fly into the wind to get lift, and those of you that fly, Ron uh, knows that. Uh, they preferred to fly with the wind because they needed the help of the wind to carry them. They had short wings, heavy bodies. And they migrate from Africa into Europe and Western Asia during the months of March and April. And then they fly back to their wintering grounds in Africa uh, in late September and early October. Rob's gonna show you a, 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 a bird migration route from Africa into Asia and Europe. And you can notice the bottlenecks on this map. You'll notice that these birds, all migratory birds, don't fly straight across the Mediterranean because it's a long flight. They're gonna, the ones in Western Africa are gonna fly across Gibraltar. That's just an eight mile pop from Morocco to Gibraltar into Spain. And then there's another batch, a smaller batch from Central Africa that'll fly to Italy, across Sicily, so it's a shorter way. But most of them go through the bottleneck of Israel. All of Eastern Africa flies through the flyway that goes through the Sinai Peninsula and Israel. And the Israelites very familiar with these quail migrations. When they were in, 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 in Egypt in slavery, they'd caught these birds with nets and snares, and they've been doing this for thousands of years. The ancient cultures, there's pictures on the walls, frescoes, uh, catching quails as they migrate with birds and with uh, snares and nets. So the Israelites are now in the wilderness of Paran. It's the northeastern aspect of the, of the Sinai Peninsula. Rob's gonna show you a map of the Sinai Peninsula. The very bottom of the Sinai Peninsula is Mount Sinai. So they come out of Egypt, they go down this triangle, down the peninsula to Mount Sinai. They stay at the bottom of that triangle, Mount Sinai, for about 11 and a half months, not quite. And then they start moving up the eastern side of this triangle in the wilderness of Paran. The wilderness of Paran is in the middle of this triangle, the Sinai Peninsula. And it says, the wind of the Lord carried the quails in from the sea. Now, normally, you'll notice from the prior map, they migrate from Central Africa to the Northeast so they can cross the land bridge into Europe through Israel. And this would imply that it was a west wind. That was normal. West wind blowing them eastward across the Gulf of Suez from Egypt. So if you look at this triangle of land, this Sinai Peninsula, one side you're gonna see the, the Gulf of Suez, that's the Western branch. On the East side you see the Gulf of Aqaba, that's the Eastern side. Psalm 78, tells us it was a southwest wind that blew the quails across from the Gulf of Aqua, but at the Sinai Peninsula in the west. 
Psalm 78, 25, it says, this recounts this. It says, man did eat the bread of angels. That's manna, the bread of angels. That's what Israel's been eating, the bread of angels, but they didn't want that. They wanted meat. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. By his power, he directed the south wind. When he rained meat on them like dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas. And he let them fall in the midst of their camp around about their dwellings. Rob, can you go back to the map? So this wind was clearly ordained by God to blow huge flocks or coveys of quail to the Israelite camp near the middle of this, the northeastern part of this Sinai Peninsula. And these quails, heavy bodies, short wings, typically were exhausted after any reasonable flight across the Gulf. And it says they were two cubits deep on the face of the ground, about three feet deep. So there's a couple of interpretations of that. One, they literally were so many of them, they were piled up three feet deep on the ground. The other translation, probably a little more accurate, says that they flew about three feet above the ground. We think that's probably better because if clearly if the quail were three feet deep on the ground, you wouldn't have to gather them up, right? And it says they spent 36 hours gathering them. Well, clearly if they're three feet deep, they're already piled up. So typically when they fly exhausted, they're close to the ground. So they're flying about three feet above the ground and you would net them. Pretty common practice, net them and snare them for food. And this has been going on for generations in this part of the world because this was a migration route, right? The unusual difference is, is that this was an east wind. So God miraculously brought a huge flock in from that period of time and so they could net them and snare them and then of course wring their necks or club them to death and that's how they would um, uh, catch them and kill them. Regardless, the quantity of quail here is enormous. It says they spent all day and all night and all the next day collecting quail. That means nobody slept for 36 hours. That's how many there are. They're busy collecting quail. It says the least of them gathered 10 homers. That's a measure of volume. That's somewhere north of 500 gallons of birds per collector. I don't know if you've seen 500 gallons, a container, five, it's a pretty big container. You're talking probably about 1,900 birds for every person that was collecting them. I mean, let's suppose you only had 600,000 people collecting them, right? The men were the only ones that collected. That's any, 500 gallons per family then of birds. Now, this is called greed on steroids. I'm not sleeping for 36 hours because I've got to have this meat. I collect far more than I can possibly eat. No one's going to eat 500 gallons of birds in 30 days. And of course it says once they collected them, they spread them out on the ground. Now, why would they spread them out on the ground? To dry them, all right? They don't dry them, they're going to rot. So they dry them in the sun to preserve them. What's interesting here is what's not mentioned. You know what is lacking that doesn't show up one time? There's not one mention they ever gave thanks. There's not one mention they ever said, Lord, we've been craving meat and you brought it to us and now we're going to say thank you. Doesn't it ever blow your mind that people go to restaurants and they have this spread in front of them that the ancients could only dream of and they can't say, thank you, Lord, for the food. And you look at them and go, have you ever tried hunger? 
If you're grateful for the food, for heaven's sake, say thank you. Gratitude. It says they didn't say thanks. It says when they ate the quail, an epidemic broke out, a plague. It says while the meat was still between their teeth, seems to indicate that God struck them with a plague before they swallowed their first bite. But there's no plague known to mankind that a food plague anyway that can hit you before the food's in your mouth. That's pretty impossible. So God had told them that you're going to eat quail for a whole month until you loathe it. So if he struck them all with death before they ate it, clearly they're not going to eat it for a whole month and loathe it. Better understanding seems to indicate that before they finished eating all the quail, before they consumed all the quail, before it ran out, they were afflicted with this plague. And before it was chewed seems to indicate the speed with which the epidemic took place. See, what you have here is you've got a fatty bird and you're drying it and it's not dried adequately, so it's starting to rot. So it's loathsome, stinks. Eating this quail led to severe nausea. It led to diarrhea and it led to vomiting. The vomiting was so severe, they vomited out their nostrils. You ever had that happen? You ever been sick enough where it comes out your nose? I have, believe me. Not, not fun. Definitely not fun. And it says, those who died were the greedy ones. You know what the greedy ones did? Probably ate too much rotten quail. And it killed them. Very, very likely from an acute bacterial food poisoning. Came from decomposing flesh inadequately dried in the sun. It says, so many people died that they named the place the Graves of the Greedy. Now, that's some name for a cemetery plot. Yeah, those people back there were greedy, ate too much inadequately, you know, blah, 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 and, and got killed. Now, there are some of you that are going to say, well, this sounds like it came about by natural means, doesn't sound like it's supernatural, and so it didn't come from God. Folks, God uses natural phenomenon all the time to accomplish his purposes. He's the one who created the laws of the universe. He's the one who created natural phenomena. And he put those laws in place and he can operate inside of them or outside of them at any point in time that he wants. It's extremely clear that Israel has a problem with giving into the flesh. And their God is their belly. And they would rather eat meat than accept what God chose to provide. And so God gives them what they want as a form of discipline. What that means is we should, at the end of all our prayers, no matter how meaningful they are, we need to say, thy will be done because you know better than I do. The number of things that the Lord has told me no and not answered at the time, broke my heart. A year later, five years later, 10 years later, I'd say, thank you that you didn't give me what I wanted. Thank you that you said no. Thank you that you closed that door. Thank you that you broke me back there so I, you didn't give me what I wanted. You didn't give me my way. You said no. How many times has that happened? <coughs> Father does, in fact, know best. Yes? God is trying to teach Israel to trust him because they've got a long journey to go. And God wants us to trust him on our journey through this life, this wilderness called planet Earth. 
When we reject God's provision and when we demand our own desires, God will discipline us because he knows if we have our own way, we will reliably choose to go off the cliff. And he's called Israel and he's called us to gratefully accept whatever God chooses to provide because he knows what we need. Because God loves us and he wants to grow us into the image of his son, he will always allow and arrange for trials in our life to strengthen our faith. And many of us are in the gym, his spiritual gym, and we don't like it. We want to go lay on the chase lounge or better yet, one of these recliners that massages you. And that's where we want to stay. And the Lord says, if you do that, you're going to be spiritually flabby. And I need soldiers to do my work on planet Earth for the time you're here because there's people that are lost. You need to armor up like we talked about in Ephesians. And what he's teaching us is when we surrender our desires to the Savior, when we discipline our desires and we say, Lord, thy will be done, he will satisfy our souls and we will have joy beyond understanding. So let's summarize and then Marty will come and um, lead us in, in uh, prayer and praise. Point one, principle one, complaining is rejecting God's care for us and his control over our circumstances. When we complain, we say, God, you really don't love me. You're not a good father. That's what we're saying. Complaining is a communicable disease that comes from selfish ingratitude and selective memory. Go back and recall God's faithfulness in your life. It will build gratitude and faith. Number three, doing God's work is impossible without God's power which means we need to pray about everything, everything, everything. Forgetting this leads to frustration and depression. And many, many times we confuse God's job description with ours. We think we're supposed to fix it. You know, most of the things in life you and I can't fix. We can obey what he tells us to do, but we can't fix it. He can fix it. Number four, God calls and equips leaders for service, calls people for service through the power of his spirit. That's how we have the power to do the work that he calls us to do. When we reject God's provision, we are rejecting God's purpose. The purpose of manna was to teach Israel to trust him. Well, the purpose of the trials in our life is to teach him to trust him too. And lastly, when we reject God's way, he may discipline us by giving us our own way. This is a pretty significant lesson. It's the, it's the first of many that Moses is going to get into. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about family feuds and how families beat up on each other. So you can read ahead next chapter. But we're going to go through a series of lessons that God is teaching Israel in the wilderness that are very, very applicable to us as we live life in 21st century America. I do love you. Now that you know, do. do. By his grace and power, do. You've been listening to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Mana Bible Lessons on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Mana meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. For more information about the podcast and class, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for joining us. And now that you know, do.